to take a closer look tonight at one of the most anticipated public stock offerings in recent years. Shares of Google, the company that makes the world's most popular internet search engine, went on sale to great fanfare today. The shares were offered at $85 each and closed up 18% higher at $100.34 a share. The offering was the biggest for an internet technology company in four years and made its founders billionaires. Google floated on the stock market in 2004. Back then, it was mainly just an internet search engine. Today, it is much more. It includes Gmail, YouTube, self-driving cars, AI technology, and a range of other services. The company is valued on the US stock market at more than $1.5 trillion. But Google's journey from promising upstart to one of the biggest companies in the world was not as smooth as you may think. I'm Graham Ruddock, and you're listening to Business Studies, a podcast that takes a second look at business stories from the past. In this episode, we speak to Claire Hughes-Johnson, who had a front row seat for the growth of two big tech companies. Firstly, Google, and then Stripe, the payments company, where she was chief operating officer. Claire Hughes-Johnson joined Google shortly after it floated, when it had about 2,000 staff. By the time she left, a decade later, it had nearly 60,000. She has written about her experiences in a book called Scaling People. Management is actually quite knowable. I try to show that in the book. Like there are tangible practices and you can follow them and they will lead, I think, to better team outcomes. I believe I, that's how, why I wrote it. But you're right. What happens is these sort of strong performers who've been individuals, individual contributors and had high impact, suddenly become managers of a team. Your job changes. I mean, overnight, basically, from being a person who gets the work done to being a person responsible for others getting the work done, which may involve when you're a young manager, you doing some of the work. But actually, your job description is to go do that work through a team. And you need to understand, well, how, what does that look like? You should have a team meeting. You should have regular one-on-ones. What do you do in that meeting? What do you do in those one-on-ones? How do you set goals? How do you give feedback? Um, but also, how do you gain confidence? I mean, this happened to me, which is I didn't feel like I was doing anything all day. Like you go from being this star, high output performer to not producing much alone is a, is a crisis of confidence. And you got to get past that and realize my job is these other people's impact. One of the things you pick out as important for, for managers to learn is, is self-awareness yes. and realizing the sort of manager yes. and, and, and leader that, that you are. Could you just talk about that and the sort of four different types that you identify? Yeah. So if you think about that new manager, right, their first instinct hopefully is, well, I've got this different job and this is where it'd be good to do some training for new managers, to your point. Don't just drop them in there. Explain. It's different. It's going to take different muscles, different processes. And then the other thing is you think, oh, well, it's my team. It's all about my team, which is a very normal default reaction. In fact, my belief is it's all about you. And the best managers have a real awareness of their strengths their work style, their preferences, where they might have blind spots, who they need at their table, what it looks like for them to make decisions, how to delegate. And you've got to study yourself and you've got to ask for feedback. I talk about two things in the book that I think are good practices to sort of get on that journey of self-awareness because no one just 
rocks up and it's like, I know what I'm all about. One is a, a values exercise you can do, which really often your core values as an individual come from your childhood, come from, you know, do you value joy? Do you value family, ambition? I value impact and learning, for example. Like understand them. Why are they your values? And the second is what I think you're referring to, which is most of these work style assessments, if you've taken any of them, MBTI, Myers-Briggs, DISC, Enneagram, to me, they boil down, this is me being the framework person, a little reductive, to basically on a vertical axis, orientation toward task, default orientation versus people. And then are you oriented more as an extrovert or an introvert on the horizontal axis? And I'm not trying to stereotype or put you in a bucket, but I think people should really think hard, you know, when presented with some work I need to get done, do I jump to checking the task off or do I think, how do I organize the people? How do I bring them along? What's the process to get the task done? And then on the introvert, extrovert, um, the litmus test for me is, do you talk to think or do you think to talk? And extroverts tend to talk, I, I am extroverted, to think. But that is a really different way of showing up because often an introvert will be quite quiet in a meeting and then come out with, like a day later, this really thoughtful assessment. And as if you're their manager or you're yourself an introvert, you've got to set expectations with your team, which is in the meeting, I'm not going to render some judgment or opinion. Please give me time. I'm going to come back with my thoughts. But if you don't set that expectation, you're going to get disconnects, especially with your extroverted team members. When Claire Hughes-Johnson joined Google in 2004, she led work on its new email service. Google had announced the launch of Gmail on April the 1st, 2004, and some people thought it was an April Fool's Day joke. This was still two years before Google would buy YouTube, and Google was a young company. Behind the scenes, it was chaotic. I joined Google, yeah, in May 2004. I started interviewing with them right before Gmail launched. And yeah, it was early. Google went public in August 2004. So I joined like a few months before the IPO. But back in those days, I feel like an ancient person. Today, and Stripe is an example, companies are staying private much longer. Google really had just gotten AdWords, the monetization engine going, was hiring quickly. But I think there were, yeah, 1,800 people when I joined. And we were doubling every year those first few years. Um, it was very chaotic. It was uh, lots of tooling and processes were sort of half built or not built. Uh, and then we were doing, you know, socks writing and all the compliance work to, to be a public company while still building the proverbial plane. But it was actually quite fun. I mean, I loved I loved that. I think a lot of people at Google would say, but we were also interviewing like 40 hours a week and then doing our job another 40 hours a week because there was just so much demand for the product and growth, which was again, exciting, but a little overwhelming. Gmail, I joined initially as an AdWords online sales and operations manager. And hysterically at the time, I was like, oh, it was the biggest place I'd ever worked. I was like, oh, this is like, they figured it out. There's three or 400 people in this org. I've got the same job as, you know, it's not that interesting. I, I, I do like to build. I was like, I want to do something new. And Gmail had, had launched on April 1st. So Google made it like it was an April Fool's joke, as a, but it was actually a launch, which took some time to clarify. <laughs> um, and it was a paradigm shift for email. It had been a secret project internally. Um, really, the brainchild of a particularly talented engineer 
who, you know, wanted to break some of the paradigms of how emails were presented in your inbox and how your inbox could be searchable, could be more like a tool as opposed to sort of this structured thing with folders and and such. And then also, I think people underweighted this, but some of Google's most successful products, Chrome is another example, had benefits around speed and security. So less spam in your inbox. Chrome is a browser, more secure, faster to load. Does that make sense? So like Gmail also had some real technical innovation in it that that caused, I think, some a certain kind of user to be an early adopter. But yeah, so I signed up to be the Gmail operations manager, which at the time, by the way, meant trying to build a team to support a product that was actually fairly complicated. Users kept not being able to find their emails. <laughs> there was a lot of inbound user confusion. And we had, we wanted to be in like 60 languages in about five minutes, which, and we also didn't want to uh, invest a lot in human resources for support. So I had this really interesting challenge handed to me by the founders. And what I loved about, I mean, this is, is I ended up really in this role as the business person, the operational person, but working really tightly with engineering on how do we not have a thousand person support team? How do we build the stuff into the product to educate the user? We also built a peer-to-peer support forum, which I fully credit to a member of my team who pitched this idea. And I think being a good manager is having enough, I guess, humility to say, oh, you have a better idea than I do, bring it. You know. And so we, we ended up, we also built a, a dashboard for engineering and product to understand the user confusion areas and the head of product at the time, Jonathan Rosenberg, saw it and sent it to like the entire company as an example of what we should do. And I was proud of that. But then our dashboard crashed because we'd hacked it together. Anyway, I, there were some real learnings. Uh, it was exciting. You didn't even know how many people you could hire when you first joined. Is that right? When you talk about standing in front of a whiteboard, and yeah. it's literally like oh. a blank canvas. In front this of you. was basically Google's, again, really early on, not a lot of people in finance processes or support. And we had these questions like, well, we need to cover, at the time it was 11 languages, but still it was like Korean, Japanese. I'm thinking, where am I going to hire? How many roles do I have open to fill? And I couldn't get a straight answer. And even it was hard. We didn't really have a good system to know who was officially on the team because there were still, when you're starting to add thousands of people, and I'm sorry if this is news to people, you are a number in a system, right? You're employee number 4579. And and you need to know what team that employee is on. And Google hadn't quite hooked all that up uh, in part. This is a side note. But Google really liked to build, not buy, a lot of its internal systems, some of which was very logical, but some of which was extremely painful for me joining. I was like, oh, my gosh, there are systems that do this. But that's a whole other book. Uh, but point is, we were so built, we were building a lot of this stuff. And it wasn't. So I had to keep track on a whiteboard of who was on my team and how many roles I had open and be sending, like rewriting it in emails and sending it to finance and HR and saying, no, 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 I, I have a role <laughs> open, please. And, and it did make me feel like, wow, scaling not just the team, but also all the supporting processes and tools is pretty critical because then humans, they, they feel like numbers in a system, right? They don't feel valued. Uh, and so it was an early lesson. What was it like being at the heart of a company that was growing that quickly? I mean, could you s- see that there was more growth to come? I mean, you, you spoke about when you first joined that you wondered how far AdWords had, had to go. And obviously it had a lot further yeah, to go. Yeah, I so, mean, so ridiculously, yeah. yeah. So were you constantly thinking that? Are you constantly worried this might stop? Or are you aware that you, you're sort of in something that's going to grow very fast and become very big? Uh, that's a great, it's the same thing having at Stripe intellectually, I mean, at Google, we would look at, okay, how much is spent on advertising 
in the world, which is a lot, like a trillions of dollars. And then how much of it is online? At that time, it was sub 10%. And then how many people are online increasing exponent like every year? And so intellectually, you're like, hmm, this is a large opportunity. Like we have not penetrated the available space. But honestly, in the moment, I never would have, yeah, I never would have thought, okay, this is going to become a company with over 100,000 people. Like, I mean, there were 2,000 people, right? When I left, it was almost 60,000, which is crazy to think about. And I think with Stripe, I built, you know, when I joined, I did my own analysis of the potential for the company. I built a model, which was sort of worst case, base case, upside case. And we're way past my upside case. I think part of that is just being humble and honest and paranoid because a lot has to go right to scale a business and a lot of dimensions, right? It's the product, of course, especially in technology, but you've got to get the talent. You've got to get the execution. In some cases, actually both Google and Stripe, you're not inventing a new market, but you're certainly creating a paradigm shift. And I think early on at Google, I think anyone would tell you, we had a theory, for example, that advertising agencies wouldn't be as important. And that was wrong. Advertising agencies adapted, changed, became digital, became as important but differently. And so you don't know how those evolutions are going to happen. And if you don't adjust to the learning as it's occurring, like Google eventually is like, we have to build a product for, for agencies, right, to be able to manage their customers' accounts. I think that would have been a huge miss. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a lot of things that have to go right to get to that kind of scale. But when you're in the middle of it, yeah, you're too close. You're in the cool, you're in the Kool-Aid, like you believe in it, but you can't conceive of the size. You were obviously identified as a brilliant manager and operator within Google quite early on. And as a consequence, things kept being pushed your way. And you, you've talked about how at one point you felt like you just had too much on that you've been yes. given YouTube as well. You had a one year old child at home yeah. and you had to say, had this, is, this is, this is too much. <laughs> And that was, from what, from what you've said, that was kind of a, a breakthrough for you in terms of the importance of being open and honest with everyone around you. Yeah, no, uh, thank you for talking about one of my awkward one-on-ones with my manager. But yeah, I really, I have a framework in the book for talent, um, top talent. There's pushers who are sort of demanding more work, more recognition, more, con- and pullers who are sort of quietly taking on more work and they're your people you give sort of thorny stuff to, but then they hit a wall and they kind of fall over. I'm obviously, I'm, I, re- I relate to a puller. And in this instance, I, I became known as someone who could really competently take on new assignments, new teams. I had started to accumulate a portfolio of actually quite different responsibilities. So consumer operations support, I'm starting to get involved in AdWords, especially new ad products. And then YouTube, we acquired YouTube. I was on the integration team, the end of the deal, assessing the talent, and then on the integration team. And then I ended up being the head of operations for YouTube, which if you think about These are just millions of videos getting uploaded. And then what's our process for evaluating the video content for safety, for example, and whether that's legal issues or even beyond. And that is, you know, eventually an incredibly important engineering problem. But initially it was an operational problem. And there was a team of not that many people at YouTube who are some of them staying up all night. looking, taking flags of videos and looking at them, just as one example. Anyway, so I became the part-time leader of this, again, really challenging operational problem to solve, where I would be driving to their office one day a week and trying to rebuild this team, which was burning out because they were watching 
thousands of hours of video and they didn't really see an end in sight, right? It was a, it was, and I, I went into my one-on-one with my manager and he was like, by the way, such a good guy. And he would always say like, let's talk about the most important thing first. But first of all, how are you doing? Which by the way, I learned from him. You should always check in with someone. How's it going? How are you? Right? So he, someone was like, how are you doing? And I started to cry, which for me was not typical. <laughs> And I, yeah, I was overwhelmed. I had too many different kinds of teams. I was spreading myself thin. I wasn't doing right by the YouTube team in particular. I had, yeah, I was learning how to be a new mom. And um, I hadn't asked for help. I mean, partly I hadn't delegated well or hired enough. I think that's happened to me a few times in my career. But I also really learned, and I still have this uh, development area, which is, when I'm starting to get under stress, I actually sort of quiet down when I really should be speaking up and calling it out and asking for help. But I'm pretty independent and proud, so I just didn't. And he was like, wow, let's list everything on your plate. And like he, didn't, he hadn't even really grokked like how much I had. So we listed it, we talked about it, and we ended up recruiting a full-time leader who became kind of the COO of YouTube, actually. Mm. Uh, a guy who's still a friend of mine, Tom, who's now actually at DoorDash. But I had to convince Tom to take the job. And I was like, I swear, it's a really great opportunity. He's like, why are you giving it up? I was like, because I can't, it's like, I can't do everything. You know, it was hard. It was a hard moment. Claire Hughes-Johnson would go on to work on Google's self-driving car project. But in 2014, she left to join Stripe, where she would be chief operating officer until 2021. During that period, Stripe would grow from 160 staff to more than 6,000 as it tried to revolutionise online payments for consumers and businesses. I had been at Google over 10 years. I was starting to feel, again, I, one of my values is learning. I was starting to feel like I wasn't learning at the same rate, growing having new opportunities. I certainly couldn't complain. Google, I had a great career, did very well by me. I felt rewarded. I was working on self-driving cars, which was fascinating. And I was learning a lot, but I also was not yet a product in the market. So one of my learnings was, oh, I'm not a great leader of a product that's sort of pre-market. I'm more of a customer oriented. You know, I, I need to have business to run. I need to have customers. So actually that was a good learning. But, but I loved the idea and the team but but I really had reached I had sort of hit a learning wall and I also started to feel like I know more about how to get things done at Google versus how to get things done in business and that didn't seem like the path I should be on and so I had taken meetings with a bunch of companies I mean mostly growth at that moment in time mostly growth stage companies that were looking for a COO and I honestly had started to believe um Maybe there isn't one. Maybe Google is the best, you know, I, and it, because I was looking, I think, ultimately for a combination of things. And I essentially given up, decided to do sort of a year of self-driving cars and then maybe take a leave or do something to really get in my head about what I wanted to do next. And then I got introduced to, to Patrick Collison. And that first meeting, I mean, it sounds like a, you know, movie story, we, like went, went long. We ended up talking for hours. I'd initially said no to the meeting because I was like, oh, I don't want to work in payments. I'd worked on some payments product at Google unsuccessfully. But I, I found the vision compelling. But ultimately, it was the combination of the founders themselves, the potential impact of the product and the company. I mean, once you work at Google where you're touching millions of merchants and consumers, a couple billion searches a day, 
you're sort of spoiled by that. And I was like, wow, Stripe could actually, and we have millions of merchants using that product, right? Which I saw a path to that when I started to look at the numbers and the, and the product. And then also my role. What was I going to learn? What was I going to get to do differently? And did I see myself fitting with the culture that they had built? And it was very impressive. It became ultimately, like, I, I called my husband one night on the way home and I said, if I don't do this, I'm never leaving Google. And he said, well, it feels to me like you were planning to leave Google. And I said, yeah, it feels like I maybe have to do this job. Uh, so it was really in the end, that combination of things. Could you see similarities between Patrick uh, and John on the, on the senior team at Google and the founders there? Both Google and Stripe had some things in common that I think I gravitated toward. Big ambition, big vision, a lot of intelligence about what technology was going to mean for the future, honestly, and unafraid to go after it. Really a high value on talent uh, and attracting the kind of people who could build to that vision. And, and really thinking globally immediately, like these are not US centric, like these were companies that were like, this matters and it should, if we're gonna meet the vision, we've gotta be global quickly. Obviously Google, more consumer oriented. What I loved about Stripe, honestly, is joining a company where every single person was where, I mean, yes, consumers use Stripe, but every person, engineer, product person, sale, they're all, we have the same customer, which is a, a business that's using Stripe as a product or a platform, right? And that, that alignment of incentives with your customer and then internally is very powerful, actually, because you can really get focused on what you need to do. So I liked that difference. Yeah, I, I think Larry and Sergey and, and Patrick and John are actually all quite different from each other and as founding pairs. And I think if you look at the evolutions of how they've played roles in the company, you can sort of play it out for yourself. But for me, what I loved about working with Patrick and John is how I think actually the whole Stripe leadership team is really, comp you know, this is one of my emphasis in the book, really complimentary. I can't speak to the Google team. I was never sitting in the executive team at Google. I was always a layer or two below that to be very clear to everyone. But at Stripe, really seeking complementarity, and even Patrick and John are quite complementary. They have this sort of overlap on values and their vision, but it made it just feel better and easier as a leader to know we're covering every base that we can. Claire Hughes Johnson began her career in politics, running local and state campaigns in Massachusetts, her home state in the US. Today, she has a collection of roles, including a place on the board of Hallmark, which sells greeting cards and is a very different business to Google and Stripe. I think there's two things about my early career that set me up. One is I took risk. I did not graduate from college with an investment banking or consulting or whatever the hot job was back in the 90s. But no, I, I actively got myself into what is effectively like a startup. A political campaign is a lot like a startup. It's really chaotic. You have to raise a ton of money. You have to organize a whole structure and organization and then spend the money and then get toward a launch, which happens to be a person, not a product. But now looking back, I'm like, oh my God, I just was like at a startup, a few startups that happened to be political campaigns. And yes, I got a ton of responsibility as a young person because I was willing to work for about five cents an hour and work my butt off, like, you know, seven days a week, lucky to get one day off. And that's great training, like that risk taking and then that sort of ambiguous, uncertain startup scrappy, like I am not afraid to take out the garbage, like you got to do every job. And I think 
you're right, I had to develop some general skill sets. I also had to develop a management skill set. Even if I didn't directly manage people, which I eventually did on campaigns, I would be in charge of the volunteers. You want to talk about a hard management job? People who are unpaid, getting them to come back every night and do meaningless tasks like stuff envelopes, right? Like that is a good management challenge to have to crack as like a 22-year-old, you know? And I learned some lessons, I'll tell you. I, I Don't be critical of the volunteer, too critical of the volunteers. But I think that training plus actually some business school and consulting work, more thinking in frameworks, thinking about macro business problems, fundamentals of a balance sheet, like that combination ended up be kind of a killer combination for early Google. And then Google, my experience, like if you stack those together, my impact at Stripe, I think. I think also working in politics, I mean, some people view that as sort of a difficult business or industry. Becoming politically savvy is not a bad thing. Understanding how communications can be very strategic, how to work with the media. By the way, there's a real symbiotic relationship uh, between governments and politicians and, and journalists and like, how do we get messages out? How, you know, who, who's the watchdog? But it really, I mean, I think now that I'm probably a better sort of marketing and comms thinker because of that early and also just managing relationships mm. and stakeholders because of that early training. When you were doing that at the time, did, did you see yourself potentially doing that forever? Oh, or, or, Graham, or, get on my list of people who think, <laughs> <laughs> I just had someone at Stripe say, when are you going to run for office? Yeah. Um, I did think at the time that that could be my career. Uh, and I and I thought that coming out of college, I mean, it wasn't an accident that I went to work on a campaign. Uh, I don't I don't rule it out, but it's not it doesn't. I, I certainly am connected now. It's very interesting, actually. I've moved back to the state where I grew up and where I worked in politics in the last few years, and reconnecting with all these people who we were all sort of young <laughs> upstarts, and um, the former governor. Charlie Baker of Massachusetts was like the chief of staff for the guy who beat who ended up beating my guy. Anyway, point is, I've known him for since he was, you know, a young aide to to uh, the former governor. And so it's it's fun. It's fun to be back and be connected. But I don't see myself. It's hard. It's thankless. I'll be honest. Well, one of the other roles I wanted to ask you about was your board role at Hallmark. Because yeah. it was uh, you took that role and people said to you, why are you doing that? I thought yes. it was absolutely fascinating that you said you wanted to be at a company that had been around for a lot longer, they've been around for more than 100 years, yes. to sort of see what it took to be around that long and how they differently yeah. they did things. So what was that like? No, you said that well. I think it's really important to be a student of business history. And business can get, I don't know, myopic, right? We just sort of focus. And it, you understand, because like the environment we're operating a business in today is very different than the 1800s in the U.S. when Hallmark was founded, but think about what you have to do to build a hundred plus year old company. And there are not that many. There's like Coca-Cola, there's a soy sauce company out of Japan, there's Caswell Massey, it's like a soap company. I really look at this and I think, well, what did they do? And it's this combination of keeping a compelling product uh, and honoring that commitment, even without the founder alive anymore, to a high quality, compelling product, but it's also the organizational investment. The fabric, like when I talk about scale, I'm not talking about adding tons of people really quickly and figuring out how to run things for the next 10 years. I'm talking about building the fabric of an institution, scalable systems and processes such that even with entirely different people, you can execute well as a business. That's a really compelling business statement. You know, look back at the great companies 30 years ago. Very few of them are great today. 
And you really want to understand a lot of it. I mean, good to great talks about this is about culture, but culture is this unknowable thing, right? It's sort of beliefs and values, but it's really how culture manifests in execution. And I'm pretty fascinated by that. And, and I think Hallmark was an opportunity. While I was at Google, I was quite young. Um, having a chance to be in a board role was going to be a development opportunity no matter what. And it really does. The minute you're on the other side of the table from when I was presenting as an executive at Stripe, I'd be like, oh, wow, I see like what I should be doing now that I'm on the board, right? But the board role was an opportunity. But Hallmark is incredibly well-run and thoughtful company and has reinvented. I mean, yes, greeting cards are the core business, but they own Crayola. They own a media company. I, they're private, so I think people would be surprised how big they are and some of the decisions they've made, M&A decisions that have uh, built their future. Mm. And that was really interesting to see. And I, yeah, I, and also interesting to see, by the way, them wrestle with technology. Because you're sitting in California, for me at the time, feeling really steeped in software and systems and like all the possibilities. And you go to a company that has all this legacy technology and it's like an anchor around their neck. And I, I could really viscerally feel, oh my gosh, you know, people talk about digital transformation, but to really do it when you're entrenched with what you've invested in for the last 50 years in terms of tech is a pretty brutal ask. Uh, so I think I developed a lot more empathy, honestly, mm. uh, for customers uh, at the time of Google, but certainly now of Stripe as we have more and more enterprise customers who have a legacy system that they need to evolve from. You've been listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. If you want to read bonus content from this episode and get business news and analysis throughout the week, then you can sign up to our newsletter, Off to Lunch. You can subscribe at offtolunch.substack.com. <laughs>